If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. As you're turning now, I'll uh, remind you that this section of Luke's gospel is known as Jesus' Galilean ministry. In chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus makes a turn to Jerusalem. And everything from that point is, is running downhill, so to speak, towards the cross. Um, at this point, though, in this section of the gospel, Jesus continues to minister in and around uh, his, home, his home base, so to speak, in, in Galilee. And that's where we'll be looking today. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, with the account of a centurion, a soldier, who desperately needs Jesus' help. So please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 7. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, help us now, we ask, to understand the word of God. Anytime, Father, we come to the scriptures, we are attempting to do, Lord, a spiritual activity, and that means we need the Holy Spirit's help. We need his illumination. Please provide that this morning, God. Please open our hearts and minds to understand the things that have been revealed in the scriptures. Please shine light upon the truth of the gospel here in this passage. Father, I do pray that you would please help me to preach clearly and faithfully well aware of the fact that this is an impossible task to do apart from the Holy Spirit's help. So please help me, God. Please help us. Please keep me from error. Please help me to be faithful to the Bible. And please help all of us, Father, to believe what it is that has been revealed in the Scriptures concerning Jesus Christ and concerning His Gospel. Father, we ask very confidently now, knowing that Jesus reigns from Your right hand, risen from the dead, and we ask in His name. Amen. One of the themes that Luke weaves through his gospel account is the theme of amazement. The theme of amazement. Time and time again, people who encounter Jesus are amazed. They're astonished. They're even overwhelmed. All of the gospel writers have this emphasis, but Luke seems to stress it in a unique way. In fact, one writer has called Luke 
the gospel of amazement. And that's a good summary. Over and over, Jesus amazes the people who meet him. For example, think of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, as Mary and Joseph marvel over the things that people say about their infant son. Or think about Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4, as the people marvel at the gracious words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth. Or Luke chapter 8, the disciples witness Jesus calm the storm and they're amazed and they ask one another, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Or chapter 9, in response to another healing, the crowd is astonished and everyone marvels. Chapter 11, Jesus heals and people marvel. Chapter 20, Jesus confounds the Pharisees and everyone is amazed. Or most important of all, chapter 24, the tomb is empty and Peter marvels over what this might mean. So from chapter 2 through to chapter 24, you can hear this theme running through the whole gospel account. It's the theme of amazement. When people encounter Jesus, they they marvel at him. He's jaw-dropping. He's stunning. In our passage, however, this morning, that theme gets turned on its head. You may have heard it when when we read, but in this text, the amazement is different. Here in Luke chapter 7, it's not the crowd who is amazed at Jesus. No, it's Jesus who is amazed at someone who comes to him. You can read it there in verse 9. Look again. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at the centurion and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Friends, this is the only instance in Luke's gospel where Jesus is the one amazed. It's the only instance. This is the only time that Jesus is the one marveling. And you don't have to have an advanced degree in biblical studies to know that that's significant. Jesus' amazement is like a flashing neon sign telling you, pay attention right here. Look at this. This is what you should note. This is what should get your attention. And you can hear the focus of that in verse 9. Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. That's the key to the passage. That's the central feature that we need to deal with. The centurion stands here as an example of faith. We could say it even better than that, actually. The centurion displays what we might call exemplary faith, commendable faith, excellent faith, the kind of faith that gets Jesus' attention and draws his commendation. Friends, think of how helpful and instructive this is for us. Faith as you know, is one of those words that we use often as Christians, but we probably don't define it clearly or nearly enough. Nearly everybody knows that faith is somehow important to Christianity, but what is faith? What does it look like in action? What makes faith admirable or excellent or exemplary in the Lord's eyes? Well, that's what this passage is going to tell us. That's what this passage is dealing with. How kind of God then (laughs) to give us what we need to help us understand better what it is to have faith. Through the centurion, God is giving us a picture of faith in action. Faith in action. He's giving us a living illustration, a flesh and blood picture of exemplary faith. The kind of faith that even Jesus marvels at. So how could we summarize the truth of this text? If we were to take the events of this passage and put them together in one summary, what might we say? 
Well, here's, here's my attempt to do that. Here, here's my summary of this passage, and then we're going to break it down in a couple of points. Exemplary faith is humble dependence upon Jesus that confidently trusts His Word. Let me say that for you again. Exemplary faith is humble dependence upon Jesus that confidently trusts His Word. Now, you can hear in that summary that there are two parts to it. Confidence and humility that go together. There's two distinct features. So let's spend our time thinking about those two features in more detail. We start in verses 1 to 6. Exemplary faith is marked by humble dependence upon Jesus. That's what we should note first. It's humble dependence upon Jesus. As chapter 7 begins, Jesus enters his his home base for ministry, the city of Capernaum. He's just finished teaching the people. Verse 1 tells us, and now Jesus heads back home. It's all pretty standard there in verse 1. Then in verse 2, though, Jesus, uh, Luke gives us some inside information that helps us know something unique is about to happen. Luke describes a centurion who's facing a desperate situation. He has a servant who's about to die. Now, before we get into the centurion's need, we should consider how unlikely this encounter is proving to be. Centurions were not well regarded in Jesus' day. They were not highly thought of. They were ranking officers in the army under King Herod, and they, com- they had command of a hundred soldiers, hence the name centurion. They were well compensated so that a centurion made hundreds of times more money than, than the soldiers he commanded. They were very well off. And all of those factors uh, alone make this an unlikely man to approach Jesus. Typically, powerful, wealthy people don't quickly sense their need for Jesus, typically. But there's something else about the centurion that makes him unlikely. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. We don't know precisely whether he is a Roman or not, but he's certainly not Jewish, which makes him a Gentile, as verses 4 to 5 make clear. And if he's a Gentile, that means he's an outsider to the religious community of Jesus' day. He's beyond the bounds of Judaism. He would have been considered ceremonially unclean. He's an outsider. And therefore, based on cultural expectations and based on the circumstances of his life, this is a very unlikely person to respond to the things of God. If you were going to pick someone to display exemplary faith, this is not who you would pick. In fact, you would say, I'm going to pick the opposite of a centurion. I'm going to pick someone unlike him. And yet, this is whom God uses to give us a display of exemplary faith. It's a a little bit of a reminder, friends, of what the kingdom of God is like. In general, God's kingdom works upside down from the ways of this world. So if someone is unlikely in the world's eyes to respond to the things of God, that's who God likes to pick. That's who God prefers to draw to himself. A centurion of all people, a Gentile, becomes the source of of exemplary faith in Jesus' ministry. And that faith comes into focus beginning in verse 3. Notice how the centurion expresses his dependence on Jesus. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Friends, for a brief verse, there's a lot to consider here. Did you catch how the centurion hears 
about Jesus? That is, he hears the report spreading around the region that Jesus is able to heal. Perhaps he heard about the leper who was cleansed in chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5. Or maybe he just heard about that big host of people whom Jesus healed in chapter 4. Whatever the case, the centurion hears about Jesus. He hears the message. But that's not all, is it? Having heard the report, the centurion then takes action. He sends word to Jesus asking Him to come and to heal His servant. Friends, we shouldn't overlook this. This is an expression of faith. He trusts that Jesus can do something. Here we have a man of power, a man of wealth, a man of position and means. He has the ability to take care of himself, but instead of depending upon himself, the centurion casts himself upon Jesus, whom he's never met. He depends on Jesus to meet his need. And where did that faith begin? How did his faith come about? Through hearing the report about the Lord. I hope, you, I hope you see it, friends. Better yet, I hope you hear it. Faith comes how? By hearing. By hearing the news about Jesus. And so it is with the centurion. He hears and he believes. Friends, one of the things I hope you pick up from this passage, and particularly this point, is the simplicity of faith. The simplicity of faith. I love this aspect of the text. On one level, this is what it means to believe. You hear the good news and then you believe it. Right? You hear the report and you trust the good news that Jesus is mighty and able to save, that He's the deliverer of those who can't deliver themselves. You hear and you believe. Faith comes by hearing. And there's a beautiful simplicity to that. It's not any more complicated than hearing and believing. And so if you're not a Christian this morning... If you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, this is honestly the most important part of the sermon for you to hear. Faith at its core centurion from believing. You see, on one level, that's the simplicity of faith. You hear and you believe and you depend upon Jesus to save you and to help you in your time of need. So if you're not a Christian today, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in the gospel, I pray that this simplicity of faith would, would be clear to you. And that this would be true in your life as you hear the good news about Jesus. Simply but clearly depend upon Him in faith. Turning from your sin and trusting that He alone can save. That's the simplicity of gospel faith. And the Bible says, for those who hear and believe, you will be saved. As the passage keeps going, we should also note that the centurion's Dependence is displayed with remarkable humility. It's remarkable humility. We've already gotten a hint of this in verse 3. As the, the centurion sends Jewish leaders to Jesus rather than coming himself, that's likely a sign of respect. Remember, he's an outsider. He doesn't want to offend Jesus. But the humility really comes into view in verses 4 to 6. Notice again what happens. The Jews come to Jesus, verse 4, and they urge him to heal the centurion's servants. Now, they're pleading with Jesus here. The language is very strong. This is serious, and they are sincere. But you'll notice that the Jewish leaders build the case on the centurion's worthiness. You see that in verse 4? They claim this man is worthy to receive Jesus' help. Why? Well, verse 5 tells you. The centurion loves the Jewish people, even using his money to build their synagogue. So, catch the argument that they're making. 
The Jewish leaders are saying, listen, Jesus, this guy has earned this. Right? This guy has earned this. He's worthy for you to do this. He's done so many good things for us. He loves our nation. He's gone out of his way to bless us. He's even used his money to please God. This guy has earned it, Jesus. He's worthy to receive your help. And look, that's a powerful argument to make. It's an argument from merit. It's an appeal to the worthiness of the person in need. But surprisingly, the centurion disagrees with their argument. (laughs) The centurion's perspective is quite different. Notice how upside down the centurion's appeal is. Verse 6, Jesus agrees to go, but along the way, the centurion sends another group with another message. And this is really key. Listen to what he says, verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourselves, uh, yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Friends, this is a powerful example of exemplary faith. Contrary to the Jewish leaders, the centurion makes no appeal to his own worthiness. He doesn't claim to have earned Jesus' favor. Instead, the centurion simply humbles himself before the Lord. He has no claim on Jesus. Compared to Jesus, the centurion knows, I'm actually nothing. I have no claim on this man. I have no claim on such an exalted person. Whatever good the centurion has done is not nearly good enough to twist Jesus' arm to act. Instead, the centurion simply humbles himself. I have nothing, he says. So I humble myself in dependence upon you. You see, he's dependent, but he's dependent in a humble way. Friends, I think we should be reminded here that faith in Christ is not a transaction we make with God. Faith is not an exchange. right? Faith is not like a spiritual stock exchange where we have shares of goodness and we give them to God and in exchange He gives us back blessing or favor or, or kindness. That, that's not what faith is like. It's not a transaction between you and God. Listen, if the centurion teaches us anything from this text, it's that faith is the opposite of a transaction. Faith can never rest on our worthiness. Faith begins with humility. I mean, the first cry of faith is not, look how much good stuff I've done, God. No, the first cry of faith is, I'm unworthy. I have nothing. I have no claim on you, Lord. That's the humility of faith. In fact, that's what makes faith Faith. Without that humility, there is no trust on our own. We have no merit that we can exchange for the blessing of God. Instead, true faith, exemplary faith, understands that we are ultimately dust before the Lord. Nothing in my hand I bring, the old hymn says. Nothing do I bring. And this is key, brothers and sisters. This is absolutely key for us as a church. It's key for you as you're trying to raise your children to, Lord willing, one day be Christians. It's key for you as you share the gospel with unbelievers. If we're not careful, we can slip into this mindset that turns faith into a work. We can slip into this perspective that distorts faith into some kind of merit that puts God in our debt. But the beauty of the gospel is that simplicity of faith that we referenced just a moment 
ago. It's the simplicity of, of just humbling ourselves before the Lord and depending upon Him alone to provide what we need. I have nothing, and therefore, Jesus must give me everything. That's the confession of faith. So before we move on from this, I, I, want, I want to emphasize this. Of all the virtues that honor Christ, humility, arguably, is at the top of the list. Humility is number one. This lowliness of spirit before the Lord. Nothing makes faith shine as brightly as humility does. There are few things as confusing as a boastful Christian. They just don't go together. Humility. This humility before the Lord. This dependence on Jesus that testifies to the world Christ alone is able to save. Christ alone is worthy of our trust. Listen to me, friends. In a culture that increasingly preaches self-esteem as the pathway to fulfillment, the gospel preaches something better. You hear what I'm saying? You listen to the world. They're saying you got to get yourself higher to have a better life. And the gospel says, no, you got to get yourself lower. You have to be humble. You have to be dependent. The gospel preaches something better. The gospel says, humble yourself. And in doing so, you'll find a Savior who exalts the lowly and gives grace to the humble. It's a humble dependence upon Jesus. That's the first feature, we could say, of exemplary faith. Humble dependence upon Jesus. The second feature is in verses 7 to 10. Exemplary faith is marked by confident trust in Jesus' word. Confident trust in Jesus' word. The centurion's faith continues, and in fact, his example becomes even more powerful. At this point, he's approached Jesus with humility, but now notice the confidence he has in, in Jesus' word. Verse 7, the centurion is speaking, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Uh, again, this is a staggering display of faith. The centurion believes that Jesus' word is effective. That Jesus' word is powerful and able to accomplish the healing. Why is the centurion so confident in Jesus' word? Why is he so sure that Jesus can do this? Remember, they've never met each other. They've never... He doesn't know this guy. So how is the centurion so confident? Well, notice the illustration that he uses in verse 8. He tells you, he explains why he is so confident in Jesus' word, verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers un under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now the centurion is making an argument here from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing from his own experience onward, onward to Jesus. He understands how authority works. As a soldier, the centurion has been entrusted with authority. And that authority which has been given to him makes his word effective. It makes it powerful. What, he, what the centurion says occurs. If he tells a soldier to go, that soldier goes. The centurion speaks and it's done. Now make the connection with Jesus. The centurion is confident because Jesus' word possesses a much greater authority. And that authority, friends, is what makes Jesus' word effective. You see, the, 
centurion has made the right connection about Jesus. <laughs> He's made the right connection about the Lord. The centurion understands that no mere man can do the things Jesus does. No mere man can do this. No mere man can heal the lame or open the eyes of the blind. No mere man can heal people with only a command. To do those things requires an authority that can only come from one place. From God. From God Himself. And that's what the centurion sees here. He understands that Jesus is mighty because Jesus acts with the authority of God. He sees the connection between Jesus and God. Now, does the centurion understand that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, who's co-equal with the Father in glory and uncreated in all things? No, probably not. He hasn't made all of those connections yet, but don't let that distract you from what the centurion does understand. He understands that Jesus' word has the authority of, of God, that it must come from God, that it's powerful with divine authority. And that's why the centurion is so confident in Jesus' word. That's why he is sure Jesus can do this mighty thing. The centurion's faith is grounded on Jesus' authoritative word. It's grounded on Jesus' word. We need to hang out on this for a minute. There's some, there's some depth to this point that I trust can feed our faith as well. So I just want to hang out on this for a second. And I want you to think with me about the context of the whole, of the whole scene. Specifically verse 7, but really the whole scene. And I want you to notice how the centurion's faith highlights the unlimited scope of Jesus' authority. The unlimited scope of Jesus' authority. To begin with, think about what we noted earlier in the sermon. The power of Jesus' word is not limited by the centurion's worthiness or lack thereof. It's not limited by the centurion's worthiness. This, this soldier is unworthy to come before Jesus. And yet, that unworthiness does not limit what Jesus can do. Do you, do you hear that? Jesus' word is not limited by whether or not you're worthy to hear it. That's good news. Jesus' word is not limited by whether or not you and I are worthy to receive the word. The centurion understands that the effectiveness of Jesus' word is not dependent on the recipient of that word. Jesus' word acts in and of itself. The power of Jesus' word is inherent and unrivaled. The centurion may be unworthy, but his unworthiness is no match for the power of the word of the Lord. What Jesus speaks, he accomplishes. What he intends, he does, even for unworthy people. His word is not dependent on the worthiness of the recipient. So if you sense your unworthiness this morning, if you are well aware of how much you don't deserve Jesus to act on your behalf, then the good news is that your life is the perfect arena for Jesus to display His power. If you sense your, un your unworthiness, if you are well aware of how little you deserve Jesus to act on your behalf, then your life is the perfect place where Jesus displays His power. His power is made perfect where? In weakness, Paul says. 
Do you get how upside down Jesus is trying to tell you the Christian life is? You, it's not the strong who survive, it's the weak. It's not the exalted who are commended, it's the lowly. So if you're well aware of how little you deserve Jesus to act on your behalf, then praise God, God's working in your life. He's displaying His power. Your unworthiness is precisely where Jesus' word does its best work. And therefore, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. When the weight of unworthiness feels the heaviest, that's the time to go to Jesus, believing that His power is greater than your need. There's still a little bit more to consider here. From verse 7, think of how Jesus' word is not limited by the lack of physical presence. Jesus' word is not limited by the lack of physical presence. This is striking to me. The centurion understands that the power of Jesus' word transcends space and distance. Jesus is not there, yet he can command the healing to occur. Jesus doesn't even have to come to the house. (laughs) He just simply speaks and his purpose will be done. In fact, Jesus' word is the outworking of his person and his presence. Jesus' word accomplishes Jesus' will just as certainly as if Jesus were present. Right? His word is the outworking of his power and his presence. Do you want Jesus to show up in your life? Then read his word. Build your life on his word. To hear Jesus' word with faith is to receive Jesus' power and it's even to experience Jesus' presence. And the conclusion of the chapter confirms the centurion's confidence. Look at verse 10, where the miracle is recorded like an afterthought. It's, I mean, Luke's not even all that concerned with the miracle, it seems. Verse 10, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. You see, the centurion's confidence was well placed. With only his word, Jesus heals the servant. And so, the confession of faith then is reminding us that Jesus' word is not limited by the centurion's worthiness and neither is it limited by physical space, physical presence. Friends, when you put these things together, what you find here is a, well, a definition, a display of the sovereignty of Jesus' word. That's what these points are coming together to show us, the sovereignty of Jesus' word. When we use that word sovereign, what we mean is a supreme power that is free from any outside constraint. That's what sovereignty means. In the, in the old times, a, a king would be referred to as the sovereign of a nation because his word was law. What the king said happened. And there was no check on his, on his power or on his authority. That's why he was the sovereign because his word ruled over everything. That's the idea behind sovereignty. And from that idea, I hope you see that technically speaking, only God is sovereign. Only God is sovereign. Only God has power without constraint. And part of the point here in Luke 7 is that Jesus, through His Word, displays that kind of sovereign power that only God possesses. What Jesus says is is accomplished And there is no check on the power of his word. Friends, I I can't think of a more practical truth at this point. (laughs) 
everybody always says, like, well, you should preach practical sermons. Okay. I can't think of a more practical point, a more practical truth at this point. As we think about the sovereignty of Jesus' word, there are, there, there's a myriad of implications that we could draw out from this. But I just want to draw two to your attention. We're talking about Jesus' word is sovereign. It's not limited by anything. I just want to draw two takeaways for you. One has to do with our life as a church, and the other has to do with strengthening faith. So consider our life as a church. The sovereignty of Jesus' word explains why churches ought to be centered on the Bible. The sovereignty of Jesus' word explains why churches ought to be centered on the Bible. Listen, every church professes a desire to follow Jesus' authority, to submit to His sovereignty, to depend upon His power. Every church professes that. But the question is, how do you actually do that? Jesus, you know, is not physically present with us, so how do we, as a church, follow His authority and submit to His sovereignty? The answer, friends, is through the Scriptures, through the Word of God. As we keep the Bible central, we are demonstrating our confident submission to the power of Jesus. It's through His Word that Jesus makes His authority known among a people. So whenever a church removes the Bible from the center of its life, even just a little, that church has removed itself from submission to Jesus, even if only in a small degree. If you take the Bible out of the center... It's hard to see how Jesus rules and reigns among his people. So we have a very simple order of service. That's what it's called. It's very simple, on purpose. And we try to have the Bible be at the middle of it in everything that we do. Why? Because we want Jesus to rule over us. We're not trying to be traditional. We're not even trying to be unique, per se. We're trying to be humble before the Lord. Friends, this is why we preach through books of the Bible. It's not simply a preaching strategy. It's how we let Jesus have the voice in the church. I don't get to pick what the topic of the sermon is. Jesus picks because we just preach through books. It's very significant that we understand the authority of Jesus is tied to His Word. It's an expression of our confidence that Christ rules over us by the Scriptures. So it's significant for the life of our church. It's also significant for the life of individual Christians. There's a takeaway here for, for our faith. And, and the takeaway is this. Ask yourself, how does faith become strong? How do you get your life to demonstrate a greater confidence in Jesus, even during times of need? How do you do that? How do you get there? The answer is by going deeper in the Scriptures, friends. It's by going deeper in the Bible. Think about the centurion in this scene. Why is he so confident in verse 7? Well, the answer has nothing to do with him, right? He's not confident because of himself. He's confident because of what? Because of Jesus' word. He knows his word has authority. It's the power of Jesus' word that gives confidence, that gives strength to the centurion's faith. And so it is with Christians today. And far too often, we try to strengthen our faith by looking inward. 
We try to increase our confidence by banking on our own reserves, on our own power. But that is never the pathway to strength in the Christian life. Never. And I know that's an absolute word. I picked it on purpose. It's never the pathway to Christian growth by looking in. No, all of Christian growth happens by looking out, away from yourself and to the Lord. And the great value of Luke chapter 7 is that it reminds us where you're supposed to be looking. To the scriptures, to the Bible, to the word of God. When our faith is weak, that's the time that we most need God's word. Jesus' power flows through his word, which means our confidence in him grows the more we take in the Bible. Look, there's no silver bullet for growing in the Christian life. And any, any church or any pastor that tries to tell you that you know, there's this magic formula that you can follow and you'll be a stronger Christian tomorrow, they're probably misleading you. There's no silver bullet. <laughs> there's no magic formula that will make your faith stronger. But there is a key. There is a foundational step that by God's grace leads to growth. And friends, that step is to go deeper in the word of God. I am pleading with you. I am pleading with you, build your life on the Bible. Exemplary faith is a word-driven, word-rooted, word-saturated faith that finds its confidence in the Christ who rules and reigns through His Word. Go to the Scriptures, friends. Not one time, not for one week or one month, but day after day after day, go to the Scriptures. Remember that Jesus' power his sovereign ruling in this world is worked out through His Word. So if you want it in your life, you have to bank everything that you have on the Scriptures. That's what makes faith exemplary. It has this confident trust in Jesus' Word. And so we end with verse 9. Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. Jesus marvels. Verse 9, not even in Israel has Jesus found such faith. Not even in Israel. That's a little preview of the rest of the Gospel of Luke. It's especially a preview of the book of Acts, where the church grows to, and expands to include both Jews and Gentiles. The Gospel is the power of God's salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And that's what we have here in verse 9 when Jesus says, not even in Israel. He's reminding us that even Gentiles will be saved. Which, by the way, is good news for all of us in this room. Amen. And that little preview of where the gospel is going is a good place for us to, to conclude. As the centurion expresses his faith in Jesus and in his word, Notice how that faith puts the spotlight on the Lord. <laughs> yes, the centurion mar uh, Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith, but where is the centurion's faith directed? It's directed towards Jesus, whose power is so mighty he can sustain the humble, he can uphold the dependent, and he can give confidence to those who believe. You see, at the end of the day, that's what makes faith exemplary. It's because it puts the spotlight on Jesus where it ought to be. And that's the value of faith in the Christian life. It glorifies Christ as the one who is worthy of our trust. It puts Christ on display to the world. 
And in doing so, it calls other people to anchor their lives on the word of Christ as well. So I I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged. I want to encourage you to build your lives on Jesus' word. Let's, Let's be encouraged to humble ourselves every day in dependence on the Savior. And as we're doing that each day, day after day, let's remember that God is often pleased to take that kind of humble, dependent faith and use it as the means of bringing great glory to His Son. And may He do so till the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the clarity of the Bible that so plainly puts before us the simplicity of the gospel message that when we hear the good news, we believe. And Jesus meets us there to save all those who believe. Father, grant us the grace to build our lives upon the Scriptures. Father, grant us the grace as a church to build our life together upon the Scriptures. Remind us, Father, that the way that we seek to live our lives as individuals and the way that we seek to live our life together as a church is not simply a, a, a strategy or a, or a program to, to, to draw attention to ourselves, Father, but it's a, way, it's a way to submit ourselves to the power of Christ and His Word. Please give us grace, Father, to do this faithfully until the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.